1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, and Matt Argusinger. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. It's
2: the all-MDP team. It It is the all-MDP
1: team. Let's wrap up the show so you can get back (laughs) to actually running that service. We've got the latest earnings from Wall Street. Former Marketplace radio host Tess Vigland is our guest this week. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the market in general, as the S and P 500 fell more than five percent this week. The Nasdaq falling more than four percent. And Jason, we talk all the time about how we're long-term investors. We like to view these opportunities as that, buying opportunities. But, uh, i got to be honest, it's a little hard to concentrate when it seems like absolutely everyone on Wall Street is freaking out right now.
0: <laughs> and it does. It seems like everybody on Wall Street is freaking out. I mean, we talked about this earlier in that, you know when in good times it's very easy to feel great about things and you're you're happy go lucky your portfolio is going up and every day is a green day um, and we you know we talk about sort of that that beef be greedy when others are fearful uh, sort of bromide that Warren Buffett loves to espouse and and we do too to a, to a degree but it's easier said than done i think in many cases and um it. I think this really goes back to making sure we understand, you know, what we're investing in. We were talking about this, uh, you know, just as a team here. It, the less you understand about a business, the more emotional you're going to be in conditions like these, when the market is selling off and everything's going down. You look at those businesses that you don't really know a whole heck of a lot about, and you say, "Oh my God, why did I, why <laughs> did I just invest in this thing? Like just the Motley fool told me to invest in. it. I, I don't even know what they do. It, should I do? I I, I got to sell. I just got to get out of here." <laughs> You know, I mean, I, I understand. I mean, we invest in things that maybe we don't understand, and, and and we really shouldn't do that. So I think it's really a good lesson learned here: is make sure that you understand what you're investing in before you actually do it. All right, so well said, Jason.
2: And I would say this: these are the times when I think you investors become investors. You know, everyone's an investor. I think when the market's going up, when, yep. when everything, you know, all your buys that you made six months ago, nine months ago, are all in the green, and you're feeling great, and you're putting more money to work, and everything seems to be coming up roses, but. This is how you react to situations like this, when your favorite companies are, are really getting hit hard, what you do, um, you know, the kind of emotional state that you get yourself in. I think that's when you become an investor. Because if you can take advantage of these opportunities smartly, um, you know, I, I think, like Chris said at the beginning, you know, we, we love to buy on dips. We think that's a good uh, strategy over time. But sometimes you know, it's good to stand back, be calm, uh, steady-handed and say, OK, market's pulled back a lot, my companies are down a lot. But be smart about what you add, you're adding to. Don't don't necessarily rush in.
1: I was going to say, Simon. I mean, if you go on a case by case basis, it, then it probably becomes clear pretty quickly that not, not everything is automatically a buying opportunity.
3: Yeah, we shouldn't downplay the fact that there are risks on a company by company basis. We're not saying that the sell off is is completely unwarranted in certain cases. We're just saying make a list of those in advance so you know what to look for for each of these companies. I think the big opportunity is seeing a disconnect between strong operational performance and herd Mentality that's just
0: pushing down the stock prices in mass. Yeah, I just say one more thing, and this was somebody on Twitter this morning hit me up with a I think is a really good piece of advice, and so I want to make sure I give credit here. This Twitter handle is at dr973, and and he said I've learned the hard way to only check my portfolio when the market is closed, and that way I can't make knee jerk reactions. And he hashtag long views. So this is a guy who I think sees investing the way we do, and uh, I, I think that's actually a very good piece of advice because it is. It's easy to go in there during during the market hours and, and see all of this red, and, and again become more emotional and make sort of a knee jerk reaction. Uh, I, I think that's a neat way to check yourself and make sure you you keep from uh, acting too sort of hastily.
2: Now let's also put this 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 week in some kind of context. I mean, this is kind of the biggest correction we've had in a while. I think the you know the Dow is certainly negative for the year. I know the S and P five hundred I think is also negative for the year. So. It's 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 a bit volatile out there, and and of course that's what we've been waiting for. This is yes. something that really hasn't happened in a while, and it seems like forever we've since we've had a at least even a meaningful pullback like this one. So you know it's, it's certainly something to be excited. And- about to take advantage of
1: absolutely, and when you when you take the the broader view, you look at the bull market run that we've had now in year six. But then you also factor in what's happening in China, uh, what's happening in Europe, how it continues to be sort of sluggish. I mean, this 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 has been sort of expected for a while, and and now we're sort of seeing it. Um, let's just go around the table real quick as we wrap up here, because. As you said, Simon, you want to look for the companies that have strong operations, etc. I am there have to be though those stocks out there that each one of you look at and you're just sort of shaking your head, saying, "Okay, I get that this is down off its highs, but I just don't really think." it should be trading as low as it is, or it should have fallen as far as it is. What's, what's a stock that, not necessarily you're saying, buy on this dip, but you are sort of shaking your head at how far it's fallen?
3: Well, I think the market is risk-off right now. So, any companies that are investing in themselves or spending heavily have been punished, especially in the last couple of months. Coming on my radar is Baidu, which is the the analog to Google over in China. They've got a huge market opportunity. I think it's been a little unfairly punished, and it's taking advantage of
0: the time to gain market share. Jason, yeah, just right in line there with what Simon said as far as the market being sort of risk off. I think that's, uh, I think that's right, and I think when you look at businesses like LinkedIn, uh, that's one that's caught my eye. It's down 22 percent for the year. We obviously had a very strong reaction uh, during the last earnings quarter, but I, I think when you look. Down the road here, I mean, this is a business. They're really the only ones doing what they're doing, and I think there are a lot of catalysts there uh, for them to grow. I think they're continuing to to build out a presence in China, which is encouraging. Um, they've grown that that membership, that uh, member base, up to to ten million plus, and uh, I I still think that acquisition of Lynda.com is going to pay off big time. And but when you look at their cash flow statement; it virtually every all the cash they're making, they're reinvesting back into this business today. Uh, but I think there's plenty of room for optionality there. I think sort of multiple multiple futures, so to speak, with this company. So I think if you can take the long view, this is certainly one to keep your eye on.
2: Maddie? One that stands out to me, and it's one of my largest personal holdings, is Mercado Libre. You know, it's lost almost a third of its value uh, so far this year. It's uh, you know, it was trading at 150 um, just last fall, and here it is, you know, just over 100 dollars a share. And I think. Yeah, but certainly it's, it's the leading e commerce company in Latin America. There's a lot of volatility in emerging markets. Simon mentioned Baidu. Uh, I get that. But if you look at all the internal metrics of this business, items sold, registered users, transactions over their payments, I mean, it is, it's growing by leaps and bounds, and it's just been sort of overshadowed by the foreign currency issues and the you know, political economic situation in Latin America. But wow. I look at it as an opportunity, and, and certainly it's, it's come down a lot.
1: All right, let's get to the earnings this week, and we will start with the big box retailers. Shares of Walmart hitting a 52 week low after second quarter profits came in lower than expected. Target's second quarter profit and revenue higher than expected. Shares up ahead of the market this week. Uh, Maddie, Walmart is
2: bigger, but Target sure is
1: looking stronger these days.
2: I think with Target, well, both of these companies, I mean, if you look at the revenue for the sales for both these companies, they're kind of flattish year over year. Uh, but I think what, what Target has that Walmart doesn't is, I think Target has a little bit of a better experience, they've got better customer service, they've invested in themselves and their e-commerce platform more than Walmart has. And I think Walmart's playing a little bit of catch-up here. Uh, I, I, the shocking thing for me about Walmart was, you know the U.S. sales were up 5%, comps were up a little bit, international sales fell almost 10%. And a lot of that is, is due to foreign currency changes. So, but that's, I've always questioned whether Walmart is truly a brand that can travel Abroad, um, and I, I just don't know if they they can really cut it there. And you know, their e-commerce sales were up sixteen percent, which is nice, but coming from the small base that Walmart that's that coming from, I am not very impressed. I mean, I certainly think, um, you know, and look, they lowered earnings guidance for the year. You know, making a lot of investments in customer service, I think that's overdue. They're they're paying their employees more, and that's way overdue. And you know, yeah, they're investing a lot in their e-commerce platform, which to me is far too little and a decade too late. So if I look at Walmart fourteen times earnings, not very excited about that one. Target, I think, is a little bit better situation. Uh, the comps are growing better; they've invested in themselves better. But even Target at 17 times earnings, I, I'm not excited. I can't get excited about these big box retailers, even at, at the lower prices they are now.
1: Although you do have to give it up for Brian Cornell, who wraps up his first year as CEO with Target, and the stock up about 30% during his first year. So, uh, nice spot to be in. Nice Thanks spot to years. be in. Now, I guess shareholders are just hoping he has a really good sophomore season. Second quarter profit and revenue for the Gap were about what Wall Street was expecting earlier in the month. The parent company of Old Navy and Banana Republic had lowered its sales and earnings guidance for the quarter. And Jason, when I look at this, I, I don't know. I, I mean, it's not great, but I, I,
0: I really was expecting it to be worse. Maybe we could just say it's solid, right? <laughs> that seems to be sort of the word for the season. I think it was a decent quarter. I still kind of wonder if they shouldn't even think about changing their name to Old Navy, because I mean, Old <laughs> Navy really is the story here. Uh, you know, we we were talking over the week about the challenges that fashion retailers like Gap face versus your discount retailers that are are much less tied to sort of a brand name and sort of what that brand means to consumers. And I mean, we know that those brands can go out of style faster than you can say pantsuit. And so, if that's the case, you see these margins uh, getting hammered. They have to cut pricing, and, and the business really uh, really take a hit on the profitability side. Now with Gap, I mean, I like the fact that they have a number of different ways that they can make their money, and that they have Gap, they have Banana Republic, they have Athleta, uh, but really Old Navy, as I said, continues to be the story here. They've they've picked up over a billion dollars in in their, their market share over the past three years, and and I think that's set to continue because it is it is really a value that I think consumers um they they, they value that 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 proposition that that Old Navy uh, offers. I think. Uh, they've they've witnessed a lot of trouble on the banana Republican gap side in their supply chain being able to get sort of up-to-date fashions out in the stores quickly and being able to sort of change as their consumers tastes change now they're really working hard on on improving that supply chain and, and ultimately that's what one want to pay attention to uh, over the course of the next couple of years in regard to a banana republican gap they continue to do okay as far as the e-commerce sales about 15 percent of overall sales uh, but but again I mean I think we really need to see material improvement in, in the gap namesake before we can really uh, see this stock, you know, see better days.
1: Let's move on to home improvement. Shares of Home Depot hitting an all-time high this week after strong second quarter results. Low second quarter profit, higher than a year ago. Shares up ahead of the market this week. So, Simon, some nice indication of what's happening in housing and home improvement, but it seems like, once again, Home Depot's got the edge.
3: Yeah, both solid results. You know, This is a good time to be a do-it-yourself retailer in America right now. Unemployment's at about 5.3%, so there's more discretionary income at play for people to spend. And then the housing market's been very strong, too. We saw the, the number of new housing starts in July, the fastest pace in the last eight years now. So, this is great if you're a company like a Home Depot or a Lowe's. Uh, As you said, Chris, I think that Home Depot has just been crushing it a little bit more than than Lowe's for the last couple of years. We saw both of them report same-store sales that were higher than expectations, both greater than 4% year-over-year in comparisons. And Home Depot's actually up 5.7% in the U.S., where we mentioned those macro uh, factors at play. So, I think Home Depot's got a higher operating margin. They're spending a little bit less on overhead, and they're paying a little bit more in a dividend. That's my favorite of the two of those.
1: Up next, sporting goods and a few stocks on our radar stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Simon Erickson, and Matt Argusinger. Second quarter profits for Dick's Sporting Goods came in higher than expected. The company also raised guidance. And Jason, That's the one-two punch we love to see, but shares down on
0: Friday, despite all of that? Yeah, well, the guidance raise was just very marginal. I mean, it went from a range of $3.12 to $3.20, to a range of $3.13 to $3.21. So, it was basically a penny uh, on on the range side there. It was a decent quarter. Uh, same-store sales were up 1.2% versus 3.2% a year ago. But, I think the biggest challenge that Dick's Sporting Goods faces today, and the reason why the market isn't gaga over these results is, you know, when when you consider the forward guidance and then we look at the big players in, in sporting apparel and in equipment, your underarmors, your Nikes, even Adidas to a degree, and we see how they're growing their direct to consumer businesses and they're really doing a phenomenal job of it. This really takes a lot away from why Dick's Sporting Goods exists in the first place. And so, you know, we've seen them you know, trying to establish some some you know better relationships with Under Armour and Nike. Try to get some of their new equipment out there in Dick's Sporting Goods stores first. Uh, but they're also building out more of their own private label brand, which is good. I mean, that's going to help them at least on the margin side, and it's going to give people a reason to consider going there, albeit for more of a value proposition. And, and they may not possess certainly that same kind of brand power that Under Armour and Nike possess. But you know, we'll look at inventory here. I mean, inventory is outpacing growth here. Uh, sales grew about eight percent, inventory's up 14 percent. You don't really like to see that, that's a sign we might see some margin trouble here down the road. So, uh, one worth keeping an eye on. I'm not, I'm not sold that these guys are necessarily out of the woods, though. Have they named their own, their their white label brand? I mean, I'm just trying to think what what the brand could be from Dick's. I honestly don't
2: know, Dick's, uh, you know, Dick's under.
1: Radio at Fool dot com is our email address, email from Gary Carr in Oakland, California, who writes As one of your dozens of listeners to the radio show and your market foolery podcast, I'm often left with this question Given how often you talk about restaurants, Aren't you all hungry during and after every show? Yes. Chipotle, Bojangles, Shake Shack, Taco Bell, and let us not forget the man behind the glass, Steve Broido's favorite, Olive Garden. Mm. They seem to come up every other day, or perhaps this is all product placement, and these companies, thanks to Allison Southwick's PR magic, are sending over free samples in return for the mentions. If that's true, she is truly firing on all cylinders, don't you think? <laughs> Reveal the secrets, please. Boy, I would love to say that we're getting free samples in exchange for all of this, but no, that is that is sadly not the case. We're just uh, Gary. We're just hungry. We're just hungry. Uh, and in the case of our man behind the glass. There's just a, a great deal of affinity for Olive Garden. Speaking of our man behind the glass, let's bring in Steve Broido as we get to the stocks on our radar this week. He'll hit you up with a question. Matt Argensinger, you're up first. What are you looking at?
2: Sure, I'm looking at Now Inc. Uh, the ticker is D N O W. This is a uh, this is a supplier and distributor of things like pipes, valves, tools, mainly for the oil and gas industry. You know, in Million Dollar Portfolio, I think it's safe to say, guys, we're really kind of early into the oil and gas space. We've seen and we saw in the spring kind of where oil prices were. We made some investments and, and now was one of them. Uh, here I, we have a company that's trading really at its all time low after being spun off from National Oil Well uh, a little while back. And uh, I just think when oil and gas prices rebound, which they certainly will. This is one you might want to take advantage of, Steve. Question about now
0: incorporated. Is it possible that uh, oil and gas may not rebound for another ten or twenty years? It seems like it's going on forever.
2: Wow. Well, ten or twenty years—that I, I, I can't. I, I would say no. They will definitely rebound before then. But the question is: Is the next two, you know, year, two years, three years—that that is the ultimate question? I think we're seeing a lot of drillers continue to drill even at these low prices,
0: particularly from the Middle East. So it is an open question. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Sure, going back to the well here on Wayfair.com. It's one I've talked about before, but they are a you know home furnishings e-commerce platform with brands like Wayfair, Joss and Main, All Modern, Dwell Studio, Birch Lane. Uh, They they had a a really solid quarter here, and solid, really emphatically solid, Chris. (laughs) um and, and you know I, I think we saw we saw the stock really pop 30 plus percent over the course of the next couple of days after the release that was a little bit of a short squeeze going on there there's about 34 percent short interest before the earnings release but this is basically a logistics slash customer service play as they connect the suppliers all around the country with customers all around the country they play into the logistics side of it getting those goods to their customers and very very customer service oriented uh, they see orders from repeat customers up to uh, more than fifty-six percent, and they see record growth in new customer ads. I think it's interesting because there is a uh, firm out there known as Citron who apparently is not so uh, enamored with this with this company, and they're going to come out with some short research apparently soon. It may be uh, an interesting opportunity sooner or later, uh, so keep an eye on it. And the ticker ticker is simply W. Steve. Would you buy furniture that you've never sat on and just have it chip to your home? Would you be comfortable with that? Hey, if they have a friendly returns policy, Steve, I'll buy anything online <laughs> if I haven't sat on it. <laughs> Simon, we got about a minute left. What are you looking at? Chris, I'm looking at Ambarella, ticker is AMBA. This
3: is a perennial favorite of ours at Rule Breakers. They're creating the systems on a chip for high-definition video. They are powering the GoPro cameras, which have been selling fantastically well for the last year for action sports enthusiasts. But they're really a crucial part of this move to high definition video. Everything that I've seen from Facebook, Nvidia, GoPro, and a bunch of other companies is that HD video is going to be a very big trend. Ambrella is a crucial part of that. I think that today's market cap of under three billion dollars is an opportunity, and this one's a buy. Steve, can all this stuff just happen on my iPhone at some point? <laughs> uh, if you're carrying it around for action sports, yes. But you know, the other thing that they're getting into is kind of security cameras and a whole bunch of other opportunities too, outside of just sports cameras. So I, I don't think that camera uh, the Phone cameras are going to be participating in that as much as he thinks, Steve. All right, guys,
1: thanks for being here. Coming up after the break, a conversation with former Marketplace Radio host Tess Viglund. Stay right here. This is Motley Full Money.
0: There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash.
1: Welcome back to Motley Full Money. I'm Chris Hill. Whatever you do for a living, imagine being one of the best not just where you work. Imagine being regarded as one of the very best in your profession in the entire country. Now imagine quitting your job with no idea of what you want to do next. That is what Tess Vigland did three years ago, a longtime host for Marketplace Radio. She walked away from the anchor's desk and began a journey she shares now in her new book, Leap, leaving a job with no plan B to find the career and life you really want. Tess. Good to finally have you on motley Fool money,
4: Chris. It is entirely my pleasure um i I don't know why you didn't ask me a long time ago, ah. but I'm glad we finally got around to it
1: let me ask <laughs> let me ask the question that uh, I know you've fielded many, many times before, but seriously though, what were you thinking? I mean, I remember. <laughs> I remember three years ago reading the news online that you were walking away from Marketplace Radio and just thinking, I, I, I don't know what's going on there.
4: Well, a few things were going on. First of all, I was uh, I was in a workplace that uh, just wasn't working for me anymore uh, for various reasons that I've declined to go into in public. Um and second of all, I know this is going to be very hard for you to imagine, but I had been covering business and economics for more than a decade, personal finance for six years, and I was a little bit sick of it. I, again, I, I, I know you cannot fathom that yourself, but uh, I can't. But... I just, <laughs> but it, it really was something where I just kind of felt like I needed to. To do something different, but the problem was I didn't know what that was, and I didn't know how to translate my skills, I didn't know if I wanted to stay in journalism or radio, if I wanted to go do something entirely different, and so I did what you are never, ever, ever, ever supposed to do, I quit without having something else lined up.
1: Yeah, that is the thing that you hear all the time, no matter how old you are. Certainly, when you get your first job right out of college, you hear that all the time. Well, look, if you're going to leave, make sure you have another job lined up before you quit whatever your current job is. But one of the things that struck me reading your book it was the fact that the people closest to you in your life, your husband, your parents, they were Instantly and unfailingly supportive of you. They were just incredibly supportive. But as you write about in the book, not only is this not nearly as comforting as one might think, but you admit that on a certain level, you kind of don't believe them when they say, No, we don't think you made a mistake. Why was that?
4: I think that um, we are also inculcated with this idea that that we have to stay uh, to, to stick with things, even if maybe they're not perfect with us. We have to have this linear trajectory in our careers. We have to do it the way we've always been taught to do it. So when I didn't do that, when I basically went against the crowd, I went against the grain, I was sure that everyone would just think I was bonkers. Um, I thought I was bonkers. I wondered if there was something wrong with me. (laughs) And so when my family, when my friends all immediately expressed support, and essentially the, the only things I heard were, oh, you're so brave. And boy, I wish I could do that. When inside I was just telling myself, you're bananas. Uh, you have just committed career suicide, it makes it really hard to believe anybody else. It makes it hard to listen to anybody else. Um, and I, you know, I think our friends and family always want to support us. So automatically my thought was, oh, you know, they're just being nice. <laughs> because I would say the same thing to somebody. Oh, you'll be fine. Good for you. You're doing what you need to do. But inside my head, it was it was the opposite. And I, I just... I couldn't really believe, I couldn't absorb um, what everybody else was saying, which was that, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, you're an adult, you'll figure it out, and we're not worried about you.
1: Well, as I said, my, my first thought upon seeing the news that you were leaving was, you know, what is she thinking? But my second thought was, well, you know, someone's going to hire her in a heartbeat. Um, but, uh-huh. one, but one of the things that you get in the book is, And you end up meeting people who have done the exact same thing as you, uh, seeking out these people. And one of the things that comes up is that, yeah, it's great to have the support of family and friends, but if you're going to make this kind of leap, you actually need to find sort of a new circle to help you
4: yeah this is a piece of advice that uh, that i would really encourage people to start thinking about Um, and you know even if you really love your job you never know how long it's going to last you never know what is going to happen in your workplace in your industry it's always good to at least have something in the back of your mind even if you don't have a actual plan b you need to think about what would happen if it went away um so one thing that i think is really valuable is you know we hear this word networking all the time and i think it's a very squishy idea um you know yeah talk to people who are in your industry and get to know people i think it's actually much more valuable to see if you can really spend some time asking people what their work life is like so you're not just trying to meet people for the sake of making connections and people who might introduce you to someone at their company. You really want to get a sense for what their work life is like and what their life is like outside of work. Um, you know, I had thought maybe I would go do something entirely different outside the realm even of journalism. Um, I'm, I love gardening and I thought, well, what if I, what if I really just (laughs) sank my hands into the dirt and became the master gardener. And I think if I had pursued that, the really smart thing would have been to go see if I could spend a couple of days with someone who does that for a living. So not just go and meet them for coffee, but I think a lot of people are open to having you spend time with them. You just have to ask. And I think it's really wise to do that so that if you do decide to make a radical change like that, you have a much fuller sense of what that's going to mean for you, for your work life, for your life outside of work.
1: You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Tess Viglin. Her new book is Leap, Leaving a Job with No Plan B to Find the Career and Life You Really Want. You say right off the bat in this book, like, look, this is not 10 steps to quitting your job, but you do offer practical tips for anyone who's thinking about self-employment, things like dealing with expenses, taxes, etc. Mm. Um, I, I think for me the most challenging part of something like that would be setting up a daily schedule. What was the most challenging part for you?
4: Uh, that was a challenging part for me. I thought that I would just you know, set up a daily schedule and I would be able to stick to it. And uh, apparently I'm not that kind of person. So that, that did not work for me. <laughs> um it might work for some other people and you have to find what works for you the biggest challenge for me believe it or not chris was managing my money you know when you've spent your entire career salaried um, or at least with a very regular income it's really tough to figure out how you're going to make it work when it's irregular Um, especially in the first six months to a year where you're not even sure what kind of work you're going to get you don't you maybe don't have any kind of regular contracting work freelance work that sort of thing and you don't know how long you're going to be independent you (laughs) it's 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 really scary to look at the quicken account and, and say um i don't know when the next thing is going to come but i worked through that i'm i'm a smart gal i figured it out and it wasn't easy Um, but it is, it is a challenge. And I think when you haven't had to essentially drum up business for yourself, uh, it is something that is new and different. And, um, that that's the biggest challenge that at least I faced and, you know, that different people will face different challenges, but that, that was a big one for me, which is so full of irony, right?
1: (laughs) What? The fact that you hosted a nationally syndicated show about money and your biggest challenge was handling money? Yeah, I think yep. that is. Um, I, I know you talked to a lot of different people when you were writing this book. I'm curious if making this type of leap is, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's challenging for anyone, no matter their circumstances, but I'm wondering if it is slightly easier for people who are younger, Um, I'm just thinking mainly about millennials, but do do you get that sense as well?
4: Absolutely. I think that people of a certain age, I'm in my mid forties. I think even people in their thirties and certainly people older than me have grown up with this notion of what your work, what, what your work life, what your career is supposed to look like. And again, it's this very, linear idea that you figure out what you want to do even before you pick a college and in college you study that and then you get a job out of school and then you get a better job after that and you get a better job after that but you keep going on a career ladder that's what our parents did that's what our grandparents did but I do think that's changing um you know the millennials are all they're staying in their jobs like two years at the most so for them quitting is no big deal. Um, For them, leaping from one idea of a job into another is, is not something that prompts an existential crisis. For those of us who are a little older, it does. And I think part of that is because we grow into an identity You know, for me, it was, I had been a radio person for 20 years and that's, that's who I was. That's how, that's how I identified myself every time I met new people. When I didn't have that, I didn't know who I was anymore. And we're getting into kind of squishy psychology now, but it does really come into play. You know, I would say that was the, the money was a very practical challenge for me, but I would say the, the larger kind of 30,000 foot challenge for me was figuring out who I was outside of what I did for a living. And it's not something that we, especially here in America, really think about a lot. We, it's, it's the first thing we talk about when we're with people It's what we do. And I hope we change that because I think that we are all much more than what we do for a living. But I do think that there is a generational shift going on. A, millennials, I don't think they see their job as the entirety of who they are, um, it, it, to a much greater extent than when I was in my 20s, um, and B, they're just they're just much more comfortable with change. And I'm not sure why that is. I'm sure some social psychologist would have some ideas on that. But they they just it's no problem for them to think about. Well, you know, if I if I'm not liking what I do, I'm going to go over here and try this and see how that works out. Um, for people like me in their mid 40s. It, it it just it sounds crazy, um, but I am really glad that that's changing because variety is good, and I love that there's a generation coming up that doesn't believe, that does not believe that that work is the only thing that's important about you.
1: Coming up more with Tess Viglin, stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill talking with former Marketplace Radio host Tess Viglin this week. You have interviewed hundreds of authors throughout your career. Uh, now that you've written your first book, any newfound sympathy for those authors? What, what do you What do you know now about writing a book that you didn't know a year or two ago?
4: Oh man, I didn't know anything about writing a book. And as a journalist, I'm sure you will relate to this. I was so used to um, daily deadlines, weekly deadlines, and I'm a procrastinator. So journalism is perfect for me because it forces me to get things done. I had a year to write the book and I procrastinated and procrastinated. I mean, I, I had other work to do. So it's not like I was sitting around doing nothing, but having that year long deadline was was weird. And I, I did not handle it very well. So that was one thing. Um, if I ever wrote another book, which I don't think I will, I'm one and done for me. But um, if I ever did write another book, I would force myself to get a little more of it done a little earlier. Um, pretend like I had only three months to write it. That's what I need to do. I need a three month deadline for a book. It was crazy. Um, I also had no idea. I probably shouldn't say this publicly, but I'm going to anyway, how, um, how stuck in the nineties publishing is. Um, I had to send word documents, back and forth to my editor this you know 72 73,000 word book that i've written went back and forth in a word document i thought for sure that they would have some sort of like shared server that we could use or maybe like you know google drive <laughs> but but they don't you're that's saying not the only way wait a minute in which they're um kind of old old school
1: You're saying the book publishing business is not on the cutting edge of innovation in this country?
4: (laughs) I know this is a shock to everyone, but yes. Uh,
1: Before we wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold, I know you're not retiring, but uh, reading your book, I cannot help but reflect on some of the stories that you have covered throughout your career. Uh, Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan in the 90s, certainly. Uh, 9/11, when you were in Boston, and the financial crisis of 2008-2009. When you think back, is there a story that stands out or has any sort of special meaning for you for any reason?
4: You know, it's so funny. I, I I'm surprised that this popped into my head, um, and no one has actually asked me that. Um, I did a story in 2000. I want to say six. So it would have been a couple of years ahead of the actual financial crisis. It would have been a couple of years ahead of, of Lehman. Maybe it's 2007, where I went to Central California and it was just the beginning of the housing crisis. And there was this town where I I walked in and it was, this, it was essentially a suburb in the middle of nowhere, um, right on I-5. and. I walked around the neighborhood with this family that had gone into foreclosure but was still basically squatting in their own home because there weren't enough people working in the sheriff's office and the mortgage department to kick them out. So I went and visited them, and they walked me around their neighborhood with one child in a stroller and the other playing ball around us. And we walked through this neighborhood that was essentially just foreclosures everywhere. There were a couple of houses where there were people, but the rest of them had overgrown lawns. Some of them had, you know, um, windows that had been broken out, and it was the first time I really started to get a grasp of what might be going on. And that story has stayed with me ever since then. That family has stayed with me ever since then. I, I, I wish I'd followed up with them to know where they are now. But seeing that subdivision out in the middle of, I mean, literally in the middle of California, um, just south of Sacramento, was terrifying. And I wish that we had all paid more attention to those warning signs because they were everywhere. You know, I I think the news media really fell down on that whole story. And um, that was a lesson for me. Uh, Because our job is to observe and to report, and I don't think we did enough of that.
1: All right, let's wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold. They have one of the worst records in all of Major League Baseball, but of course, hope springs eternal. (laughs) Buy, sell, or hold, the Boston Red Sox making the playoffs in 2016.
4: (laughs) You're cruel. You know I'm a Red Sox fan, but I'm going to say sell.
1: I'm a Red Sox fan. You're hurting my feelings. Come on. They can no. turn it around. Worst to first, right? <laughs> no,
4: they right? can't. No.
1: <laughs> Alright, let's move on. Last weekend in Los Angeles County, four different cities experienced record-high temperatures. Buy, seller hold, living in L.A.?
4: Bye. I still love it. Um, I think the temperature is actually the least of our worries. We're going to run out of water in a year, but I still love it. It's a great place to live.
1: This celebrated group has been a cultural influence for five decades and even coined their own word in the Oxford English Dictionary, buy, sell, or hold the comedic stylings of Monty Python.
4: Oh, sell. I don't get it.
1: (laughs) I think you're in the minority on that one. Come on, they got their own (laughs) word. Python-esque. I mean, you can't beat that. Uh,
4: I don't laugh. (laughs) I never laugh.
1: Finally, I know your fans have asked this because even I am getting questions from listeners on this topic. Buy, sell, or hold. Tess Vigeland returning to radio as a full-time host one more time. Oh. Hold. That'll have to do. The book is Leap, Leaving a Job with No Plan B to Find the Career and Life You Really Want. It goes on sale August 25th, so check it out. Tess Vigland. thanks so much for being here.
4: Entirely my pleasure, Chris. Thank you.
1: That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer is Steve Roito. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.